and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Good morning, Bent Tree Church. It's good to see you guys. It is really good to see you guys. And um, here, here's the official greeting. Greetings to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from sin and death. Amen. That's what we are here for. We're here for him. That's what we celebrate on Sundays and uh, this uh, special communion Sunday that we have. So we'll celebrate that at our end of our time of preaching today. Because we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, Our sins have been washed away. And that is a powerful thing to say. That we have the righteousness of Jesus in our heart because of what he did. Not because of what we did. Praise God. That's good news right there. That's good news. Well, after we took a break from the Gospel of John and we did that series on family discipleship over the last four weeks, we're back. So here we are in John 7. So let's turn to John chapter 7 as we continue our working our way through this wonderful book. We call this series, So That You May Believe. Uh, we call it that because that's what the Apostle John said was the reason he wrote the book so that we would read it and believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, let's go deep to grow deep in our love of Jesus. Since it's been a minute since we've been in this chapter, let's remember our setting. Jesus has been preaching on the Temple Mount during the weeks-long celebration of the Feast of Booths, as we can also call it the Feast of tabernacles. Thousands and thousands listening to Jesus teach during this feast. The crowd is mostly made up of just common Jewish folk. But then there is a second group of people that have been listening over the last three three days or so to Jesus preaching. And that's the Jewish leadership. And over a year now, they've been uh, seeking to arrest Jesus, to find a way to arrest him and crucify him. They want to stop him from preaching. They've tried to arrest him, but it just hasn't worked. For one reason, the the Jewish people are just loving Jesus. There's just too many of them. And they're worried, the leadership's worried about losing their power, uh, that the people will rise up. But the other reason, and really bigger reason, and true reason, is God just hasn't let it happen. I mean, they are, I mean, God is sovereign. They, they can't do uh, what God has not allowed them. So Jesus has come to carry out the Father's plan for him on earth. And until that plan is finished, nothing will deter Jesus. Amen. The Jewish leaders have tried to arrest Jesus, but they haven't. They haven't been successful yet. So they go back to their headquarters to regroup. They, say, they, they go home that night, they regroup. It's the last day of the feast now, called the great day of the feast, the last day of the feast. And we'll learn more about that in just a little bit. And then next week, we'll even unpack it more. But, so this is the last day of the feast, and Jesus begins to preach once again. What Jesus says here isn't very long, but what he says here is deep. So let's dig in. Look at the verse 37 is where we'll pick it up. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Hang on right there. 
I want you to stop right there. Now, remember, the guys are there to arrest Jesus. They've, they've said, all right, now we're going to just send our thugs in to arrest Jesus. The crowd presses in. The guys are right there. Jesus could simply not have shown up because of fear, but he doesn't do that. He knows he has the power. Instead, Jesus stood up probably on some kind of platform like I'm standing on. This is interesting because Jewish rabbis, when they taught, they sat down. So he's making a statement as he stands up. Then he cried out in a loud voice that can, that, that line there can literally be translated. He shouted at the crowd and, and he's wanting all to hear. In other words, Jesus is not backing down even though those guys are right there ready to arrest him. So what does he say to the crowd? Second half of that verse. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now let's get a handle on what Jesus is doing here because baby, it's deep. I'm, I'm telling you it's deep. Let's start out with our understanding that Jesus is referring back to the prophecy in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Let's look back, Isaiah chapter 55, verse one. Here's what God says through the prophet. He says, come everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. There's a general call that Jesus is making here. He's referring back to when God prophesied this through Isaiah. Anyone who thirsts, that's who it's made to. Now, if we think back to John 3, when Jesus asked for a drink from the woman at the well, do you remember that? And it leads Jesus to offer her living water. That living water, both in John 3 and here, is the water that gives life. But also some fundamental things about understanding that phrase, living water, as opposed to just water. Living water is the water that is what? It's flowing. It's pure. It's clean. It's clear. Now let's think about this for this uh, question, or we should say uh, the offer that Jesus is making to the people. I say it that way because it's a statement, right? Uh, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's the statement. But the statement then begs the question, do I thirst? Do I thirst? Thirst for what? Now, we'll get to a deeper understanding of this thirst, but let's start by asking this. What do we thirst for? What do we thirst for? Well, you can answer that with a surface question because I always thirst for Dr. Pepper. We can always say, I thirst for coffee. I thirst for that. But what do people around me thirst for? And he's talking about something deeper, isn't he? Here's the surface answers for me. If I go just beyond Dr. Pepper, you, a you answer this for yourself. What do you thirst for? I thirst for being able to go into the mountains and explore. I do. Love the mountains. I thirst for vacations to cool destinations with my wife. I, I, I like working with tools. I, I make stained glass. Did you know that? Well, I put it together. Isn't that a good hobby for a pastor? I, I, I make stained glass. That's something I like to do. It relaxes me. I, I thirst for time like that. I thirst for relationships with, with brothers and sisters in Christ, with family, those that I love. If I go deeper than that, the, beyond just those surface levels, those first few levels, and say, what do I thirst for? Why do I thirst for stuff and experiences 
I would have to say this. I thirst for whatever I believe will make me happy in the moment. I thirst for experiences that will make me happy. I thirst for relationships that will fulfill me, for more stuff that will make me happy. That's my driving mode, isn't it? Do you see where I'm going? But it seems like everything I get, although some great stuff, and even if I get more stuff and fun experiences, it seems like it doesn't really give me what I'm looking for. Jesus is saying everyone is thirsty for a water that gives life. He says, if you come to me, I will give it to you. No holes barred. Anyone may come, right? Jesus says, anyone may come. The offer is open. And well, everybody thirsts, don't they? We're all looking for something that will make us, well, we use the word happy. The word happy doesn't really capture what I'm talking about, does it? It doesn't, but that's the only word we have. Jesus' words, uh, his word thirst really works well. The thirst of the analogy that we need, we long for something to give us life, to make us happy, to make us complete. So let's take the analogy and apply it the way we look at the Old Testament. Do you remember when God led his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt and into the desert, across the Red Sea, into the desert? Do you remember that? This first problem that they run into Two million people in their livestock in the desert. What do they run into? Water. Or I should say the lack of it. They're thirsty. They're in the desert. There's no water. They've got a drink. All the water they brought with them is quickly running out. The people began to complain. Moses prays to God, says, God, what are you doing? Let me read exactly. Here it is. Look at Exodus chapter 17, verse 4 through 6. So Moses cried to the Lord. To Yahweh, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now the rock was struck and the water flowed. And we're not talking about a little bit of water. We're talking about enough water to feed 2 million people. That's more than all of northern Colorado combined. All the livestock, everything. We're talking a a massive river that comes out in the middle of the desert. The people of Israel were in the desert. They needed the water. God provided the water in the desert. That's a miracle now, isn't it? Now, let's go back to Jesus. He's preaching about the second half of verse 37 of John 7. What does he say? Jesus cries out in a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you thirst? Sure we do. Sure we do. We are all clearly wanting something that the world can't quench, even with its best stuff. Like we said, we we try to call it happiness, but we all know there's something deeper. Jesus is talking about something much, much deeper, a need, a spiritual thirst. So he says in the very next verse, he says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, 
As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's a lot here, so let's make sure we get this. What does Jesus mean when he says, whoever believes in me as the scriptures has said? I want us to understand it means to believe But first, we need to address this caveat that Jesus' disciples, um, as the Scripture says, uh, look at this, as the Scripture says, what does it say? What Scripture is Jesus talking about to his disciples here? The Hebrew Scriptures, in other words, what we call the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, these words describe me. Now, you need to make sure and understand this. This is very important here. The Old Testament is talking about Jesus. That's a lot to understand there. That's important for a lot of reasons. But let's get this thing down in our minds. There are many that have made up a false Jesus in their mind that they can follow. But it doesn't look at all like the real Jesus described in the Old Testament or in the New Because if Jesus is God, God the Son, we also know that God does not change. The word is immutable. There's a lot of folks saying crazy things like, I love Jesus, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Well, then you don't like Jesus either. Because it's describing Jesus. By the way, if you've ever heard someone say that, you know that they don't know the New Testament very well and certainly none of the Old Testament because the New refers to the Old Testament. Many will say, I I like Jesus, but what they don't like is what he said. If they said they do, what you'll find is that they pick and choose certain verses and then they get rid of the others And they create a new Jesus, not the one described in Scripture. Or they simply don't use the Bible at all. Then they make a new Jesus up out of whole cloth, don't they? One that's, well, let's just say, who is not so offensive. Because let's be honest, Jesus says things that are offensive. He makes people mad wherever he goes. Jesus says to believe in him, he's talking about real belief is what the Old Testament says about me. Okay. Well then, what does it mean then to believe in Jesus? Now think about this with me before you answer. You can believe in something at a mental level. We call that mental ascension, don't we? It's what Jesus is referring to here when he says, believe in me. It's what will produce rivers of living water. No, no. I don't think so because there are three levels of belief here. That's what we're looking at. There's a, first, there's this initial kind of belief. Let's look at it. A belief that is based on knowledge alone. Mental ascension. A belief that is based on knowledge alone. The kind of belief that Jesus is talking about here definitely has this part in it. Like the gospel is something that you hear. You must hear it. You must read it. You gain the facts in your mind 
of the person and the work of Jesus. That's what this is talking about. But simply knowing about Jesus, of his life, his death, his resurrection for us, is simply not enough. I I mean, you can know all those facts and still rebel against those facts, can't you? Even the demons know who God is, who Jesus is. They know the facts about Jesus. Are they saved? No. So what we're saying is that simple knowledge of who Jesus is and what he he did does not produce the kind of saving that Jesus is referring to here in verse 38. But there's a second level of belief, and that's this. A belief that is based on knowledge and approval. A belief that is based on knowledge and approval. However... Here's the deal, Johnny. Just like the first level, just like knowing the facts and even knowing and approving of those facts, or we could say agreeing with those facts that they are true, still is not enough to save us. What we're saying is that even the second level of believing is not enough to produce this saving faith we're talking about. It's not enough to produce what Jesus is talking about here in John 7, 38. That rivers of living water will flow out of those who believe in him. It's the third level. So watch this. Write this down. Three levels of believing. Three. The number three. A belief that comes from being regenerated by God resulting in our decision to repent and turn to Jesus and follow him as Savior and Lord. A belief that comes from being regenerated by God, resulting in our decision to repent and to turn to Jesus and follow him as Savior and Lord. Notice our decision does not come first. Our regeneration does every time. We do not save ourselves. Let's give, say, let's give, uh, give saving faith of what Jesus is talking about in John 7 a further definition. This is from theologian Wayne Grudem, somebody I really trust. He says this, saving faith is to trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. Saving faith is to trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for the forgiveness of sins, our sins, and for eternal life with God. Now, the Apostle Paul puts it so well when he talks about this. Let me give you a scripture to think about here that talks about our salvation. This is one that we love to quote around here. It's one that you should commit to memory, kind of have underlined little stars around it in your Bible. And Paul defines this third level of belief when he says, uh, when he refers to Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 9 through 11, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Watch this. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Praise God. Now, who's the offer made to? Everyone. Everyone. If you look a couple of verses down there, you you see that Jesus, I mean, Paul says, the, the offer is open to everyone. Everyone who believes. 
To believe in your heart, that does not mean in the beating muscle in your chest, but it is referring to the real you inside of you. Going back to John 7, when Jesus says in the second half of the verse, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now remember, we all thirst, don't we? Let's go back to the idea of the Israelites as they are being led out of slavery in Egypt. Let's go back to that idea. The picture we need to get in our head is this spiritual desert. We're all looking for something. Songs have been written about it. Movies, books. If you think about it, all songs, all books, all movies are actually on that one thing. Our need for something. You too sings a song I love. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. They say it just plainly, don't they? It's been said before that everyone's life has a hole in it. And we're trying to fill that hole with meaning. Something that will fill the hole. Possession, stuff, experiences, love, children, a spouse, house, cars. Maybe you name it. We try to fill that hole. Nothing can fill it. Even those good things. But then Jesus makes this claim. Look at the offer again in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his, and I put this in, the believer's heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is telling us the result of what will happen if we believe at that third level. The level of faith, the level of being born again. We repent. Do you understand It comes from being saved. It does not cause salvation. What does it say the result will be? That out of his heart, rivers of living water will flow. Now, we always want to ask, who is this referring to? Well, it seems obvious to me. It's the one who believes at that third level. Out of him, out of her, or the one that believes out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. This may be obvious to you, but it wasn't to me, to me until I really dove in. See if this makes sense. Look at the word flow in that word living there. Both are referring to water, living water that flows. The word flow has meaning, doesn't it? It moves. It's a movement. Water that flows, it's not stagnant. It's continuous. It gives life. It's like a spring. Now, the word living, as in the living waters, also has this meaning of flow of movement, but in a different sense. Now, watch this. It means it's not stagnant. It's clear. It's cool. It's full of life. Now, as you think about the water of life Jesus is referring to here, that will flow out of the one who believes. I want you to hold on to two thoughts simultaneously. Can you do that? I'm asking the men, really. Guys, can we hold on to two thoughts simultaneously? This will be a struggle. Ladies do it all the time. Okay, I want you to hold on to this. One thought, here it is. Think of the Israelites in the desert needing water. You're worried about your family. Your livestock's dying right in front of your eyes. Moses strikes the rock. Boom! Water flows to the people. Rivers. Life-giving water in the desert. We're saved. Water of life flows. You got that picture? All right, second thought. Here it is. Picture that stuff that you've tried to fill that spiritual thirst you have. 
Something may, maybe you thought, this is it. This job, this experience, this relationship, having kids. Did that work? Did it fill you up like you thought? No, it didn't. Even the best things in life still fall short of real joy, real life that Jesus is referring to. That's also a desert, isn't it? Isn't it? Until what happens? Until what happens? Until we find life. When we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we find life there. Now, you've got that right. You've got those two things. Notice it doesn't stop with finding life. What does Jesus say will happen to those that believe? Out of his heart will flow what? Rivers of living water. You and I will become the rock in the desert that will produce living water to those around us that live in the desert and they are thirsty like you and I were before we found Jesus. Now watch this. We could go and preach an entire message right here, but I want to mention this truth to you. Let it rugle around in your brain. That's a Pastor Ralphism. Let it rugle around in your brain. The rock that Moses struck in the desert foreshadows Jesus being struck to give us life. Woo! Gives me chills right here. He's described as the rock. God struck him. And rivers of living water flowed from him. The rock that Moses struck in the desert foreshadows. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus being struck to give us life. Now what we mean is through Jesus' suffering. And his crucifixion, his death, he was struck like the rock was struck. His blood flowed like a fountain, didn't it? In that flow of blood, look, look, look. We found life in the desert. Here's how the, this applies to us. As we follow Christ and believe we are saved, and Jesus says rivers of living water will flow out of us in many times in our suffering. It is the rivers of life that will flow from us. Look, because we are suffering, life is hard. Jesus promises that to all those who follow. He says life is going to be rough for you. But I'm going to produce rivers of living water coming out of you. It doesn't sound like rivers of life in our suffering. How is it possible that we can have rivers of life coming from us, from our heart, as Jesus says? Well, the answer is in verse 39. We read, now this he said about the Spirit. Notice capital S. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now notice the Spirit referred to here with that capital S is the Holy Spirit. I always like to point that out as we read that capital S, Holy Spirit's referring to the third member of the Godhead or what we call the Trinity. It lives in each and every believer. The Apostle John is cluing us in on what is coming as the Holy Spirit will come that we see in Acts chapter 2. We read that with 120 waiting in the upper room, right? It came with a sound of a mighty rushing wind. The sound, not a rushing wind, the sound and what appeared as flames of tongues on their head, but not fire. And it was loud. 
these disciples speaking in a different language than their native tongue and that the people outside heard them, heard them uh, speaking in their own tongue because they were from all over the world. We'll preach on that another time. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing to preach on. But look, Jesus promises his, this here in John 14, verse 25 through 26. He said, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus promises his followers that they are far better off with the Holy Spirit and working with them because he, the Holy Spirit, will not only teach things, which is a lot, that's a lot of things, He, the Holy Spirit, will also bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said. In other words, he will help it make sense. Now, that's that remembrance isn't just a, oh, I remember what he said, but that the Holy Spirit reveals the deeper meaning in the text and indeed the entire Bible itself. That includes the words of the Old Testament. Now, in John 7, 38, when Jesus promises us the Holy Spirit, Now in John 14, when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will come, and here in verse 39, when the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, the Apostle John says, as yet the Holy Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Look, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit had not come at all before Acts chapter 2. No, that's not what that means. The Holy Spirit is described working through the Old Testament And through the New Testament, what John is describing here is that when Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come after he is glorified, it is that the Holy Spirit will come in his fullness for all those who believe. When you are saved, you get the full measure of the Holy Spirit living inside you. Now, do all of us access that? No. Many of us, including me, we stymie that work, don't we? But we have access to it, if we will. What John is describing here is that when Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come after he's glorified, he's saying the Holy Spirit will come in his fullness then, in every believer. Before Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit worked in men and women at different times, different points. You see it all through the Old Testament. But what Jesus is saying for those who truly believe, who have been made alive through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his working in their life, they will have the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you think back to John 3, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, do you remember what Jesus says about the work of the Holy Spirit and being born again? Let's look at it. Just, just to get clarification, starting in verse 5, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he's talking to Nicodemus, unless... One is born of water and of the Spirit, Holy Spirit right here. He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now notice all the references to the Holy Spirit in that verse. Jesus is saying it is actually the Holy Spirit that calls us to life when we're dead in the Spirit. That calls us to be born from above. Or what can also be translated as born again. That's the Spirit, he said. Before we are born again, we are what? Spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. It is the Spirit who makes us alive. At the one direction of God, the Father, made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross, from the cross. As we look at what Jesus had just said in the Apostle John's description of the Holy Spirit in the lives of all those believes, and that it will produce these rivers of living water, it is to affect the world where we live. You have the life of Jesus flowing out of you, the power of the Holy Spirit working within you, producing this life. Whenever Jesus preaches, there's some good, deep stuff. But then check out the people's reaction to what Jesus just said. So we read in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Now notice a title called the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Now let me just clue you into what they're talking about here. Sometimes in the Old Testament, we're talking about a prophet that's coming. Some, uh, it's talking about the Messiah. And, and schools of thought had risen up, depending on what school of thought you were. They would say, well, there's the Messiah, or the prophet, or both, or they're the same one. Same one. That's what it is. One would be the prophet, one would be the Messiah. But really what the Old Testament was prophesying is there's one Messiah we also call the prophet. In other words, Jesus fulfills both offices in one. That's what the people are talking about here. They're confused. They're arguing among themselves. But then there's another argument we read about in verse 41. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. The people were right that they had part of the truth. Isn't this how things work? They had part of the truth, but not the whole thing, and they got it wrong. Jesus was to be born of the house and lineage of David and in Bethlehem. That was a prophecy. But what they had wrong was they assumed that Jesus was from Galilee since that's where he'd grown up. And you've heard me say this before. Jesus probably had an accent that you could recognize from Galilee. Because you and I both know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We'll celebrate that. Can you believe it? In just three months. He was born in the house and lineage of David. Then we read in verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. Now we're not told exactly who this is talking about. We know the religious leaders want to arrest him, but this appears that now some of the crowd wants to arrest him as well. This sounds like there are some of the common folk that were saying, not only do, do they not believe, they are saying, look, he's saying something so blasphemous, we've got to have this guy arrested. And what that really means is to be put to death. But we clearly see Jesus is in control of the situation. 
He won't be arrested until he allows himself to be arrested. And remember, he sees that arrest already coming. That will happen in six months. Okay, this is where the scene changes. Right here, verse 44 in between 44 and 45. You can draw a little line there. They all go home, right? Not everybody, they just go back and kind of regroup, maybe the afternoon. What we're about to see then is the temple guard goes back to the Sanhedrin, they regroup. The ruling council of the Jewish leaders called Sanhedrin, they report back to them. The guards, all of those people report back to them that had gone to arrest Jesus. So look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. I got to tell you, I laughed out loud when I read this part when I was going through. You go, Paul, this is not a funny part. Well, let me show you why it's funny. These guys had one job. It was just to go and arrest Jesus and bring him back to the council. That's what the council's thinking. You had one job, but apparently they're overwhelmed with Jesus' teaching. They're touched. They probably had like tears running down their face. So they don't arrest him. They come back to the council. So we read in verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Apparently they've fallen in love with Jesus. This is one of those questions that has no right answer. This is like, hey, have you quit knocking over gas stations? You know, like, oh, I've never robbed gas stations. You know, it's it, no matter how you answer the question, you're wrong no matter what you answer. The religious leaders, they don't want to hear about what Jesus said on the temple mount. They just want the guy arrested so they can kill him. I mean, these temple guards are clearly touched. They're moved with Jesus' teaching. But the religious leaders, they don't care. So they add insult to injury and ask another question that the guards are really not supposed to answer. Verse 48, have any of these authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Now, what's also funny here is that the answer is apparently yes, but they don't know that yet. Some have started to believe in the Sanhedrin that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of God, the son of God. But none of them want to admit that yet because they would be killed. We know Nicodemus, for one, believes or will believe soon. He's considering that Jesus is the Messiah. We saw that in chapter 3. It shows that these guys are out of touch even with themselves in their own group. They just want Jesus dead. Then these religious leaders continue their insult of the temple guards. They say in verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. It's accursed. They insult the normal, everyday people out there. These religious leaders are clearly well-read, well-learned men. But they insult the guards saying, you believe like the uneducated common folk now. You're just one of them. So then Nicodemus chimes in, the one we think is already a believer in Christ. This is Nicodemus in verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, this is an honest question, isn't it? Referring back to the law. Nicodemus is trying his best to stand up for Jesus and not risk his own life. But those guys won't have any of it. So we read the last verse of the chapter here we're going to look at today. And that's verse 52. They replied, 
Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now this whole argument at the end of the chapter, um, this is really interesting to me. This is a little bit like accidentally listening in on another family's argument around the dinner table. It's like you're in a situation you just, you don't really want to hear it, but you kind of do. You, you want to chime in and point them into the right place. You see that they're all jerks and completely dysfunctional as a ruling council. These guys are supposed to be the big spiritual leaders of the country, but really they don't know the truth at all. They're lost. They just want money. They just want power. They want influence and they want to get rid of Jesus because he threatens all of that. I mentioned before that Galilee was not thought of as a place where well-to-do people or highly educated people come from. So they mean this as an insult to Nicodemus by asking him, are you from Galilee too? His response is not recorded here, uh, but what's a little, also a little funny here is when they say, search the scriptures and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, that's patently incorrect. We know that at least two prophets did come from Galilee, Jonah and Nahum. We know that. And then Jewish theologians and Christian theologians will then argue three others also, Hosea, Elijah, and Elisha. So five prophets really probably come from there. I want to say to those leaders, in your face, but I mean, I can't. They're dead. They're gone. But we have to come to the end of chapter seven already. Can you believe that? Man, like we covered some ground today. You're, you're doing good. I want us to come back to the words of Jesus that we began this section of Scripture where the religious leaders were arguing among themselves. They had missed the very words of life of Jesus. What I find so interesting is that the temple guard listened to the words. They were trying to arrest Jesus and they listened to the words of life. You have to wonder... Did they become Christians later on? We're not told. I, I want to know if they're in heaven. I guess we'll find out one day. Maybe you were touched by these words that we read in the second half of verse 37. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you thirst? Is there something, is there something missing in your life? I'm not just talking to non-Christians. I'm talking to both Christians and those that don't believe. For Christians, if in fact you are a Christian, the promise is the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. If that's true, if you believe, then it says in verse 38, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That means that you will be different when you meet Jesus. That you will have the life of Jesus coming out of you and how you live, how you speak, speak, how you treat others, how you serve. It's what Christians do, rivers of living water pouring out of their lives, the kingdom of God, the gospel message flows. Discipling others Leading D3 groups, participating in D3 groups, one-on-one discipleship over coffee, teaching little kids in Sunday school, leading youth. Those kinds of things are the river flowing or being part of the youth 
pouring out to them Jesus. Christians, it's time to get in the game. If you are a Christian, start pouring life out. Look, in this church, for you non-Christians, maybe you're just checking the place out. Thank you for coming. Maybe this whole Christian thing, you're just kind of looking into it. Maybe you didn't want to come. Someone drug you here. Let me tell you, from the bottom of my heart, it's real. It's real. Jesus, he's the son of God. God himself come to save the world. This thing of heaven and hell, the guilt of your sin, my sin, all that stuff is real. Your sin is real before God and it makes you an enemy of God. Would you believe? Would you place your faith and trust in Jesus to save you? I'm not talking about the first level of believing. Uh, I'm not talking about the second level of believing. I'm talking about that third level. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Would you be willing to confess that with your mouth, believe in your heart? If that's true, you will convert. What I'm not saying is just some prayer that you say and boom, you're saved. You pull the right levers. I'm saying convert, change teams. Quit following Satan. Quit following the world. Start following Jesus. If you're saved, you will do that. Stop being an enemy of God and become a child of God because he loves you. Begin to live what you believe. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters in this place right now. Those that do believe but have stifled that living water that could flow. Maybe they're worried about what people think or their position or their job. But God, help us to believe. Help us to believe in such a way that we let, let go of our, our worries about what other people will think. God, for the Christians in the house, would the Holy Spirit move in such a way that would just be an overflowing in our lives to the people that we come in contact with? And God, for the, those that are in the house or listening online that don't believe, God, would you pierce their heart with your words, the words of Jesus right here, that they would believe in Jesus, that they would turn their heart fully to him and convert, change teams to follow him in repentance, turning from their sin and baptism to show the world that they would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. We thank you for this. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.